VF. The VF stands for VF Podcast, specifically. Yes. With my co-host and good friend, Caleb Lee Hunt. Caleb, What's up, hello. everyone? How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I am doing well. The weather is finally a little warmer thank in God. Ohio. Yes, thank the Lord. Um, so we feel good. And we're also here with a very special guest, one of my best friends in the world, Dr. Hank Spaulding. Woo, woo. Hello. Hello, Hank. <laughs> Hello. How's it going, buddy? How you doing? It's going good. It's going good. It's a nice warm day. It's overcast, which is nice. Not so much sun, but it's a beautiful day. It is a beautiful day. Um, so yeah, we're talking with Hank. Hank is a professor. He is an associate pastor. Actually, Hank, why don't you explain all of the things that you do? <laughs> uh, I, I can do that. I can do that. I My main role, my big hat that I wear, my 10-gallon hat, if you will, <laughs> it's a dumb joke, uh, <laughs> is uh, associate campus pastor at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. The Mount the Vernon. Mount the Vernon Mount Vernon Nazarene. Uh, in the Mount Vernon, Ohio. Um, and my Several other smaller hats are um, adjunct professor here and at Ashland University, and aspiring to be one day the greatest author of all time. I'm just kidding, not that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but hey, no. As I, far I, as I'm concerned, you already are the greatest author of all time. And that's all that matters, really. Look out, Moses. Yeah. Here comes Hank Spaulding. <laughs> I love that the platform for greatest writer is Moses. <laughs> hey, probably most read. That's of all true. Time. Yeah, that's true. That is true. The Bible's the number one most selling book in the entire world, guys. Yeah. 2,000 years in a row, Hank. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's true. And now I'm just mad at you for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. All right. I, I, I just said I like writing things, and then you compared me to Moses, and now we're <laughs> And now here we are. So uh, the reason that we're talking to Hank today is Hank gave one of the best lectures I've ever heard in a seminary class uh, that I was taking, and... That really captured my imagination, and he got such good feedback from that seminary class that he's actually going to probably write a book based on that one lecture. Trying. 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 <laughs> um, and so... Basically, we wanted to pick Hank's brain about a new, healthy, and probably more robust way to talk and think about sex and sexuality, which is a really big issue in the church. It's something that we fight over a lot. It's something that we need guidance and direction on. So as one of my best friends in the world and a PhD in Christian ethics or something like that, we thought something we'd have like that, yeah. something like that. I mean, I know it's something more specific than that, but I'm calling it Christian ethics today. That's good. I like that. All right, cool. Uh, we're going to pick your brain on how we should think and talk about sex. So basically, I just want to pick apart a little bit or maybe just get some groundwork on your thesis of, of your talk around sex. And you talk about neoliberalism and how that informs our view of sex and sexuality and the body and things on that. So can you explain what neoliberalism is? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it means Barack Obama. I'm just kidding. Barack no. Obama. <laughs> it Yikes. does not. It does not. It's funny. The first thing I always have to say whenever I talk to uh, students about uh, neoliberalism is uh, that it's not like liberal conservative. That's not the goal here. Neoliberalism is just referring to um, like a type of capitalism that takes over all of our kind of thinking, right? So neoliberalism is not just about um, 
money. It's about making money kind of the sole arbiter of what is good and what is bad. And so things that normally wouldn't be considered in financial terms, uh, like time or family, are understood in terms of their economic um, advantage or disadvantage. Got you. So is this kind of where we see a lot of problems arise when it comes to like the healthcare system, as well as like we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about sex and how that relates to neoliberalism. But like, is that where things arise where people have to go millions of dollars into debt to stay alive? And usually you wouldn't think about that as like a moneymaker, but we've kind of made it that. Is that kind of what you're hinting at with neoliberalism? Yeah, and the thing about neoliberalism that's interesting is that it's just—it's not exactly just capitalism. So capitalism is a little bit different. So capitalism is just basically a form of economics that's based on free market exchange and that kind of stuff. And you can go back and read those people. Now, granted, within capitalism, there's embedded this idea that it can always expand to be more than just about money and exchange of money. It's always about money, but the exchange of money is generally how capitalism is understood. And so neoliberalism is based on the idea that a free market... Uh, free of external interference by any kind of political or moral advantage or moral system is the best kind of uh, economic system that we can have. And if we all just lived according to that way, we'd have better lives. And so it's not just a means to make money. It's a means to live your best life, right? And so it's hard to pick those apart because for so long we've treated like, you know, the American dream in terms of an economic advantage. Mm. I mean, so, for example, like Robert Reich, who's a guy who was the, uh, um, he's basically the, the treasurer, uh, treasurer uh, sorry, secretary of the treasury um, for the Clinton administration, wrote a book recently called The Common Good. And the whole book is basically about how the common good is about economic advantage and economic um, stimulation, right? And so um, the problem is that the common good normally was associated with things that are not understood to be economically advantageous. So for example, and this is a real fun example, in an economic introduction book, or introduction economics book. I'm dyslexic, so I, I sometimes say <laughs> it backwards. It's pronounced uh, bislexic? Bislexic, right. yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> so what's funny is uh, in this economic, uh, this introduction economic, economics book, um, this author talks about, he's explaining this um, concept called opportunity costs. And there's this uh, woman that he's talking about who's a uh, married with two kids, um, and she decides one day she's going to take off work two hours early, go to the grocery store, buy a bunch of groceries, and then also um, make a really nice meal for her family. And the economist there looks at that situation and thinks about the money that she loses by taking off two hours early because she loses, she's a counselor. And so she can charge 50 bucks per hour. So she loses 100 bucks. And then she also loses the money that she spends on the groceries. And she loses the money making the, during the time that she would be making the meal and serving the meal. And so all that money um, seems to come to like a $500, $600 loss. It's an opportunity cost. Um, and the point that he tries to make, he reverses it. If she would have worked for longer, let's say work for three or four hours, mm-hmm. and then on her way home, pick up food from like a fast food place or someplace that has quick service dining and taking it home to her family, instead of having a deficit of $600, she would have a surplus of $250. And so the point that he's trying to make, and he doesn't under, he's not really trying to make this kind of moral argument that we should all kind of react to right. when we see it, but um, he's trying to argue about opportunity costs and the way that we understand money in relation to an economic system. However, the thing that he fails to realize is that he's completely monetized 
that woman's entire yeah. economic existence. And so one of my favorite things is this very cheeky theologian once took that uh, example to its logical extreme because people are like, oh, that's ridiculous. It doesn't compare to the previous thing. But if we're really collapsing all experience down to economic experience, then this is really just follows right in line. There's the line that he says, uh, this theologian, this very cheeky theologian says, well, let's think about it in terms of the relationship between Mrs. Harris and her husband. That's the name of the woman. Um, imagine that instead of having sexual intercourse with her husband, she decides she's going to work. And so she works for two hours and she hires a prostitute to have sex with her husband. The prostitute would cost, um, in this example, like 50 bucks, and she would make 100 bucks in that time. And so that's the thing that's really interesting. So that's the they come out in the po- positive there. Exactly. That's the thing bucks. you should do. Right. And so this example seems kind of weird, and it seems like we've gone on a tangent, but neoliberalism is embedded with this example because it just says that we should evaluate every decision we make every opportunity, everything that we experience as humans in light of its economic advantage or disadvantage. And the thing that is most advantageous is the thing that is morally good, and the thing that is not advantageous is morally bad. Um, So it invites this type of reading of our lives, because once you start saying Mrs. Harris shouldn't cook a meal for her family because of the money she would lose, then you invite that question about prostitution, which seems like a jump, but it's really not if you follow it to its extreme. And so neoliberalism is just breaking down all forms of thinking into economic thinking, uh, which is not capitalism. So the line that I always say is that all forms of neoliberalism are capitalistic, but not all forms of capitalism are neoliberal. And so that's that's a kind of distinction that we try and say. Uh, or I try and try and make there, but there's tons that go to, goes into neoliberalism with its history and everything that goes back into it. But that's the world we live in, and so like think about it in terms of education. Like all our education system now is like, what kind of job can I get out? Yeah. of Yeah. Um, you know the kind of relationships like networking is the new form of friendship. So yep. we don't have friends; we have contacts. you have a network. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so like it's, well, that's actually really interesting. Even on social media, and like even growing up, like you see those charts, like the guidance counselor: if you go to college, you make this much more and stuff like that. Right. But even like in social media, like LinkedIn right now is having a huge surge yeah. in popularity, um, and it's because of this very thing we're talking about. It's about making connections where you, you have connections mm-hmm. on LinkedIn and it's having this huge surge, whereas Facebook is only popular in like the older generations yeah. and yeah. that's where you have friends, you know, yeah. or whatever. So yeah. it's really interesting that you even, like I, I've never even thought about that in, in terms of like the, the deeper underlying reasons of those things. But All sorry, right. sorry to cut you off. No, Keep you're going. good. I'm probably talking too much. What, what do you think, Caleb? <laughs> I actually am right now just shocked at how many like connections I have versus friends. I literally thought about that the minute that you said that. I was like, oh shoot! Like even in the in the Christian ministry world, like oh yeah, I have so many more connections than I do like foundational friendships. Yeah, yeah. which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so even just listening to you talk about the way that we um, view relationships, but also just put everything into economic mindset, uh, like yeah. the way that we think about everything and mm-hmm. how. Um, the result of succeeding is really what is at the forefront of most of our minds mm-hmm. from an economic standpoint. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of this like Kendrick song that it's called uh, "What Is a, What Does a Dollar Cost?" or "What's a Dollar Cost?" Mm-hmm. And it's like that's I think kind of what you're calling into question whenever we talk about sex in regards to neoliberalism. Yeah, is like he's just questioning. Okay, what am I actually willing to do for money? Right, and he's talking about. Um, you know, hood politics kind of, and, you know, pimping and prostitution and those kinds of things and drug dealing. Um, 
really debating, okay, is this dollar actually worth it? What does a dollar cost? Mm-hmm. You know? And that's, it kind of reminded me what you were saying there. Is that kind of what ne- like you're calling into question is this view of neoliberalism monetizing literally everything? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, the thing that the, – the really subversive thing about it is neoliberalism does things really well. First of all, it defines success really well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can – this person who's successful is the person who gets to the end of the game with the most stuff. It's Monopoly, right? Right. Um, you know, and it's really great. So it's really great at success, but it's also really great at promoting individual choice, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We as um, a culture really value not having our individual choice infringed upon. This is why it's so hard to have friendships. Because your friend has the ability to look at you and say, "Hey, stop doing that," <laughs> and you trust them, and so the, you trust them, and you and you respect their opinion, and sometimes even seek it out. Yeah. But a contact, on the other hand, will be someone that'll just basically, you know, help you get to the end of the line the way you want to. Um, they are just there in a mere utility, and so you can easily shift this, start to think about sexual relationships. Um, and one of the things that's been really fascinating in the last like decade is there's been all these studies about college hookup culture, which is interesting because that's my environment. Um, even at a Christian college, there's hookup culture. Right. Yeah. There's a study done between our campus and a local college near here named Kenyon College about hookup culture. And one thing that was fascinating that they found is that it's happening way less there, which is a non-Christian school that um, is just kind of a liberal arts college and it happens way more here than hmm. than they thought and so it's interesting to hear that but in college hookup culture that's exactly how they treat sexual relationships that uh, you go to parties you drink a ton and you hook up with people in order to kind of gain status right especially amongst men it is m- more leaned towards uh men the power dynamic exists with them and less so with women in fact if you look at it across the board it actually is not advantageous for women to participate in it but there's this kind of carrot at the end of the stick that if they participate in it and they go through with this kind of hookup culture they'll fit in they'll have lots of friends right but what they find out when they get on the other side of that is that they're more lonely and isolated than they were before they engaged in it now this isn't to blame women this is to blame the system itself neoliberalism in the end doesn't really offer the guidance that it wants so i mean why is it that the people who have the most resources the most success the most whatever, according to a neoliberal system, are also like the most oppressed, the most lonely, the ones who self-medicate mm. the heaviest. Yeah. Um, neoliberalism offers a false good uh, in its um, dividing of the world, right? And yeah, so that's absolutely. the problem. That's actually something I've been struggling with. And Caleb and I have had this conversation before, just even privately, is, you know, we're both young and relatively poor, you know, especially for the, <laughs> for the areas that we live in. You know, I live in a very, like, rich part of Columbus, as does Caleb, a separately rich part of yeah. Columbus. Uh, and so I walk around and I see my, you know, 30-year-old neighbors driving Porsches and walking into their $700,000 homes, and I'm like, ooh, I want that. But they struggle with the same things internally, probably, that I do. And so... For me, it raises this kind of like false sense of, yeah, like the false promise, this false sense of hope. If I just get there, if I just have a little bit more, then I'll be fulfilled. And I think the same thing happens 
in our sexuality, and that's kind of what you were hinting at yeah. in terms of hookup culture. Like, for the guy, oh, if I just sleep with one girl or, you know, whatever, if I sleep with all the girls, right. then I'll, you know, I, my peers will respect me. Um, I'll be the alpha male or whatever. And for the girls, like, maybe I'll gain acceptance of, you know, this one guy or what, whoever's at the top of this, you yeah. know, social food chain. Yeah. Um, and so basically I want you to dive more into that if you can. Like, how does neoliberalism affect our view of sex and sexuality Yeah, in and outside of the church? Yeah, this is an interesting one. It's fascinating. Do you know the percentage? If you had to guess the percentage of how many people were dissatisfied on college campuses with hookup culture, what would you think that would be, like the, just the percentage? Whenever you say, like, dissatisfied. Like, like, they did not like it. Like, it left Oh, them. they hooked up and they were sad? They, they didn't. Like, <laughs> so yeah, they're hooked up and... <laughs> they're sad. They, they don't like it. Like, they don't like the party culture. They don't like the, the way that sex happens on that. I would say, like, mm, 45 to 50%. What would you say? I'd say probably higher. Probably, it's, it, probably close to 70%. It is 90%. Yikes. 90%. And then it persists. And it persists. It persists because it offers a culture of, again, just think about neoliberalism, an easy way of success. If you participate in it, you know, you're going to find happiness, even though it's, again, a false promise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it has individual choice. I can sleep with whoever I want to. Yeah. Now, this isn't to say, like, uh, when some Christians hear this, they think, well, the answer then is to go back into what we're and we're going to talk about this later the purity culture stuff um we can i don't talk about it now that i see that's <laughs> the thing like i don't think that it's that different because oh, okay. the whole point of purity culture is exactly to monetize sexual experience um to kind of back up just a little bit so we'll give the ending punchline there and then we'll back up and then we'll come back to it but the, <laughs> and then we'll circle back and around. then we'll circle back around to it and then and then, then we'll just restart the conversation all together so welcome friends this is the v podcast <laughs> <laughs> don't forget to like and subscribe <laughs> so uh, but the uh yeah so how does how does like sexuality get monetized that's a really interesting thing whenever i say that to people they always think i'm talking about like prostitution and i actually very rarely am um, because and this is actually this leads to a question I, I have for you in this process because this is as I'm studying for what may never become anything other than just a really good lecture and if that's all it ever is then that's fine um, great lecture Hank. <laughs> thank you so but the uh, like there's this I was reading this book called um, erotic capital which is a really fun title for a book and she gives this <laughs> example of this woman named Sandra who was laid off from her job um, and Sandra was uh, overweight, uh, didn't have a very good wardrobe, um, you know, didn't have the right looks. And she, during her uh, period where she received her severance, because usually when you get laid off, you receive a severance. But during that time, she spent all of it in the gym and she lost uh, 40 pounds, uh, bought a new wardrobe with her severance package, which is really risky. Um, <laughs> and, and basically, like, you know, started hanging out more, going out more, being in public and developed really interesting social skills. Now, what's interesting is that she, at the end of her severance, was hired at another firm for her same job, uh, but for more pay um, and with more supervisory capacities. So what's interesting is that she developed certain non, like, um, com like well, what we would term, like, when you think of commodity, you think yeah. of, like, the intangibles, of, right? Yeah, the material good. But she developed certain commodities yeah. that are not like a car or money or affluence right. or anything like that. But the way she looked, the way she dressed, the way she acted, 
fit a certain mold that led to economic advantage. Mm. The reason why we commodify non like traditionally commodified things, like for example, a family meal is because we always want to, uh, at least the system of neoliberalism is always built to head us back towards more money. Yeah. The reason why we make that claim about that family meal is because we want to make more money. That is what is good. Remember, what is economically advantageous is the good, and what is economically uh, disadvantageous is bad. And so what's interesting is that health culture, and this might this is be interesting to hear what your thoughts on this, John, is that it is an entire industry based on making yourself acceptable to those around you. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I saw this post from this person who was severely overweight, and she posted, like, the traditional, like, like the picture the of before like, and after, the before and yeah. after shot and she got all this praise and all these new follows and instead of like embracing it and like rejoicing in it she actually had this like severe mental breakdown mm. because it basically affirmed all of the anxiety she had when she was overweight which mm. is that i don't have meaning until my body looks a certain way wow and so i mean going back to hookup culture women have to spend far more time preparing for a party than guys hmm. So, like, they, they spend hours doing their makeup, picking the right outfit that, you know, is going to attract the right mate. And that, again, is not on them because the system is not set up by them. It's set up by dudes who want a particular kind of woman or girl to hook up with. Right. And so they all are trying to be that so that they can gain social acceptance. It's really sick when you think about it, but it's what we as a culture think of as the traditional college experience. Yeah. Like, we would sense that, as a culture, that we would be robbed if we didn't have that, which is really fascinating if you think about it, because 90% of people who go through that say they don't like it. Right, yeah. Basically, just to wrap it up or to summarize it all up, is that um, we have all ways of getting, like, advantages, so that's why it goes back to the idea of connections versus friends. Like, we are always trying to gain certain types of intangible things Um, and tangible things that will lead to our economic advantage. And so our friends are structured that way. Our bodies are structured that way. Um, There's just a hundred things that we all do to try and achieve economic advantage. And one of them is sex. And that's, that's the most fascinating thing. Um, Because when we treat like all, if all we know to achieve the good is constantly accumulating, accumulating, accumulating to try and have the most stuff at the end of the line. And we turn that to then look at our sexual lives. Then sex is just a commodity that can lead to our advantage. Right. That kind of thing. Sleeping with the right person, um, not just because it feels good, but because it leads to, you know, like a particular thing, going back to hookup culture. The guys who sleep with the most women or the most attractive women are revered. Yeah. And the ones who don't are not. great philosophy book uh, um, by a guy named Michel Foucault that he talks about history of sexuality and he is very clear that he thinks sex is about power. Now this mm-hmm. is interesting because we talk about the ladies man uh, correctly, the man's man, that kind of thing. But if you think about if we applied the same rubric to women in that same system, the guy who's had a ton of sex is just like a legend, right? right. The girl who's had a ton of sex is labeled, you know, a slut and things like that. And so um, again, it's just it's disproportionately structured to um, 
advantage men over women, especially, yeah. and we haven't even uh, talked about uh, the ways that this impacts um, community LGBTQIA community. Uh, these studies, these studies are still very interesting in terms of that hookup culture. But yeah. in terms of the one that we all um, recognize, the heteronormative culture, it is structured towards uh, heterosexual men. Um, and it's very interesting to kind of, I mean, there's tons of stuff we don't have time to talk about, but like, you know, stuff on race, um, uh, stuff on, um, once you happen to leave college, you've got the bar scene, which is just college hookup culture round two. Yeah. Um, and those kind of things. And so it's very interesting to see that now, um, to, we, we gave the punchline and now we're back to it. And so it's like, how is, uh, is purity culture any better? And so like, uh, you mentioned earlier that. I kind of grew up in the zenith of the purity culture, and mm -hmm. what I what I think you meant by that was like the the purity ring stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, Hank, uh, did you ever own a purity ring? I did not. Oh, really? Uh, at least not intentionally. Your dad must have been too cool. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if he was too cool. I just think that um, he didn't know about it. Like, okay. uh, he since he was a pastor and a theologian, like those things existed outside of his orbit. Um, he taught sexual ethics for years and things like that, and so that was never really like ni neither of my sisters, I think, owned it. Maybe I don't. I'm not sure. I don't okay. think they owned a purity ring. I had years later. I got a a ring with Latin on it. Uh, it said Sanctus, which uh, means holy. But this was from like some, this was from some like Lifeway thing, oh, yes. and so they meant it as purity. And I was like, oh, uh. <laughs> so, that's interesting. So I bought it, and under the auspices of holy, I was like, oh, this is a good Wesleyan thing to wear. And then I found out later that it actually meant purity according to the sellers. And I was like, oh, this is a purity ring. Yeah. So. Did anyone ever grow up in the uh, True Love Waits movement of, yeah, of youth group yeah. culture? Yes. That was the one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. True Love Waits. Yes. Yeah. So, as, so I'm a youth pastor, right? And so, like, yes, kind of, right? It's like I don't want my students to, like, be sexually promiscuous, even if in their high school that gets them some sort of stat. You know, like, it's, neoliberal, it's neoliberalism, but I also want to fight against the damaging purity movement in a sense where I don't want my students to, like, have this unnecessary pressure or this unnecessary view of God that views them as angry or that everybody's going to be disappointed in them or that they have to suppress things that they don't really need to suppress because they're normal things. Yeah. So what do I do? Like, how do I talk to my students who are, you know, you, you're from the same tradition that I am now a part of, the Nazarene tradition, like the Nazarene tradition that's still very much in this purity movement and like yeah. how, do how do we affirm the good things, things reject the bad things both with neoliberalism and the purity movement when they're saying the same thing yeah is it all right if i talk real quick about the purity movement as neoliberalism for a second just so we can i would, yeah i would nothing more you want nothing more okay I, that's, that's all i want that's good to know <laughs> well i mean if you think about it like it structurally looks very like it's it's only different really in one capacity uh one group is having a lot of sex and one group is having no sex um, that's really it. Um, because yeah, if you fair. think about it, in terms of, like, what happens if we just use the example of hookup culture? Like, it's a, a process in which um, participation in it promises um, acceptance and value and good and things like that, but it cannot deliver on that promise. Mm -hmm. So, for example, 
Uh, and it also, I mean, think about it, it disproportionately affects one group over another. And so like any kind of this ceremony you're talking about, Caleb, like the true love weight ceremony, every single one I've ever heard of, like that's one of the things I do when I teach sexual ethics in college is to be like, all right, so who had one of those ceremonies? And usually what happens- They had ceremonies? I just heard it as like a phrase. Oh no, it's a ceremony. Have you seen one of these ceremonies, Caleb? Uh, I have seen one of the ceremonies via YouTube, but I've not ever experienced. Yeah. Hey, can you explain what a true love wait ceremony is? Is it like a wedding ceremony? Kind of. not having sex? So basically, like, there's this story where there's, like, usually it's divided, like, uh, well, not divided, but um, sometimes it's divided into guys and girls. And when it, they come back together, it's, I mean, and when it's together, it's a little bit worse. But basically, like, the, the purity ring stuff, the true love weights wing, ring is like this little, like, ring that they sold in every Christian bookstore I ever saw. And usually what happens is women, again, here women, would have to, when they turned like 15 or 14 or something like that, their dad would get them a ring and they would get, there would be this night at church where the youth pastor would preach this sermon about purity and keeping your bodies pure and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and basically they would say, all right, now everyone who wants to accept the covenant of the, of the pure, and it's not really a covenant, it's more of a contract because it's like I will not have sex until I'm married and, you know, all this other stuff. I'll keep my body in mind and thoughts pure and again these are all on women i mean there are some guys who have purity rings I, i've known them and i've seen them and, and talked to them and so some do it for both but the vast majority of them like I've, since i've been here every time that i talk about it only the girls have ever been a part of the ceremony and so they invite all the girls down to the altar they have them sign their contract and put it in an envelope that they're one day going to give to their future husband and so they have to keep up with this thing wait so they're actually supposed to give that to their like fiance when they get engaged or something no they're supposed to give it to their husband on their wedding night and then he burns it in front of them yes oh gosh yeah it's so great that's not, um, that's not real <laughs> it is not real that, that burning part i made up that's not, okay. i don't think that's part of it but anyway so they the youth it should be so here's where things get really weird i mean granted it's been weird all along uh this is where it gets really weird is that they invite all the guys in the youth department to come and pray over the over girls. girls yes oh my gosh. and what happens is is the girls have to pray the prayer i will keep my body pure all that stuff and the guys pray a different prayer they say i will protect this woman's purity and that kind of thing so again the guys don't have to make the same commitment except to you know avoid um situations wherein uh, they can uh, like defile this body or something like that. They don't have to keep their own bodies from being undefiled. That's the implicit assumption. They, just have, they have to yeah. protect the Christian women from being defiled. And this has a, I mean, depends on how long you want to go into this, but this has a long history in Christianity all the way back to uh, especially slavery and civil rights movements. Mm. A lot of the racist ideology, especially in um, uh, the southeast and Michigan and even a lot in Ohio you'd be surprised like a lot of the reasons for lynching was to protect white women's purity against uh, black men's impurity wow. and slave narratives in the New Testament even this is where it gets really scary is that um, women in the early church wanted to live a life as a consecrated virgin and so they but they recognized their husband had needs and so in slavery, in the terms that early uh, society, especially early Christian society, it's not like a Christian innovation, it's just something from culture that they adopted into their own. But um, if the, like the wife owned any slaves, especially female slaves, they were not, um, like they didn't have their own bodies. They were an extension of the wife's body. And so the husband could have sex with them 
and still having, like, still within Christian legal ramifications, having sex with their wife, but having sex with another woman entirely. In and order it, to it counts as... It counts as intercourse with your wife because it's an extension of her body, not a, a body, like, that's different from it. And this comes over into, you know, slavery that we're most familiar with in the United States. Um, but it's a way to protect white women's purity. And so there's a racial dynamic to this that is really important. And again, the, the thing is still the same because it says it disproportionately impacts women, first of all. Yeah. It, it, like, it gives an advantage to men. And then on, on the whole, it's, it promises a life of fulfillment. And what's interesting right. is there's this really great book that just came out called Pure um, by author, her last name's Klein, and I cannot remember her first name, so I apologize. It's Pure. Um, and it's about all these stories about purity culture. And here's what she finds like nine times out of 10 when it comes to purity culture. When two people have gone through um, that kind of true love wait ceremony and gotten married, um, what they find is that the husband and wife have this really awkward relationship with sex and they cannot have sex. Yeah. So, like, they're always like, oh, it's going to be so much more meaningful when you have sex for the first time with your husband. Um, and I, I'm not denying that there can be some truth to that, but the promise that is the build-up to that has been sex is bad, keep your body pure. Mm -hmm. If that's the language you use to deliver on that promise, you can't. Right. Because once you have sex, according to that rubric, your body is no longer pure. Right. And that's something that you are not given any kind of tools to deal with once you have had sex. And so husbands and wives, like I remember, I actually know a couple. This is really sad. I know a couple. They've been married for 10 years, and they still have not had sex. Whoa. Wow. Not once. They and can't, it's because they, they have, have that, that mental roadblock They have of that purity? mental stigma to it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and just desperately, like they, they, just, they just can't get over it, you know? Um, but on the reverse end, like if you think about it this way, there's, I mean, there's so many facets on why purity culture doesn't deliver on the promises that it wants to. I knew a guy who told me that if he um, ever found out his fiance had had sex in any kind of capacity, um, he would immediately break up with her, divorce her, whatever. Uh, come to find out, like into their engagement, um, they didn't finally make it to marriage, but found out that she had been sexually assaulted when she was younger. Oh, that's and heartbreaking. And he dumped her. Oh, oh that's gosh. double heartbreaking. Yeah, because it counts for him. And the thing is, is it's no, it's not her fault that that happened. Right. Yeah. But the logic of purity culture is very clear. Bodies that have not had sex are better than bodies that have. Right. What well, do you even think about the language we use around purity culture and how it mimics what you're talking about with neoliberalism? Mm -hmm. I'm going to save myself. Like that's an economic term. Yeah. And like so build up credit. Yeah. And so whenever you build up, and, and you mentioned that in your proposal. Uh, of like, yeah, you build up that credit and you save and then that is more valuable come your wedding day or whatever, you know? Um, even, yeah, even the very language we use around purity culture can be bound up in that neoliberal um, framework. 100%. That's 100% true. That is so it's, it's both in both systems, like the, the, what we'll just call the free sex kind of code fetishism, which is the phrase that I adopted, and the purity culture realism, um, you have this situation where really all that matters in the end is which bodies matter and which bodies don't, and your ability to choose the most advantageous thing for yourself. Right? That's the desire. But again, not everyone gets to choose. <laughs> yeah, in both systems, not everyone gets to choose. Yeah, it's whoever has the power. So obviously, like all of this stuff is heartbreaking, like yep. just the way that it affects um, our sexual ethics and the way that we see the world. 
Um, maybe if you could just take a couple minutes and just talk about, well, probably more than a couple minutes. That's but okay. <laughs> if you could take a moment and talk about like what is a healthier sexual ethic look like? Mm-hmm. What what is a what what is maybe putting us on the right track of thinking in regards mm-hmm. to our sexual ethic? Yeah, yeah especially, especially like, like wanting to keep, keep, you know, a solid Christian witness, wanting to be as faithful as we can to the message of Jesus, which cares about, you know, each other, which cares about each other's bodies. And certainly we are human beings which are bound up in our sexuality at some level. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's a great question. question. That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I have, I have a part two okay. Okay. to it, too. Do remember okay. all of this, Hank. Yeah, go for it. Um, remember everything I'm saying. I will do my um, best. Also, maybe talk about how it can affect um, the way that we see the world in, in terms of economics and how it can actually, because when I was reading your work, one of the things that I was like caught by was the fact that it's what feeds the problem maybe the most but can also be the thing that derails the entire issue. Mm-hmm. So it kind of feels like it's, it's the force that either makes the whole thing worse or the force that can completely change it for the better. Right. So I would love to hear you kind of explain what the sexual ethic is and then talk about how it can reverse everything. Yeah. It's interesting. The, um, uh, I'll start with a story, and this is a story that probably John remembers most from the, the lecture itself. Um, I remember every word of that lecture. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad. Every I'm word. So glad. I, I, I remember in that moment when I was giving that lecture, though, that like people were like uh, pausing and just looking at me weird, and I was like, this is either really good or really bad. I don't know which. Um, I wonder if that's how like MJ feels. Yeah. You know, like whenever MJ was like, it's 90, 1995, and he's just on fire. He's just like sinking shots and driving to the rim, and people are just looking at him. Then he gives that shrug. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That, that was you in that moment. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I am MJ in his prime. Uh, <laughs> let's, let, that's the takeaway from this. You are the combination of Moses and Michael Jordan in his prime. Wow. Congratulations. Is, I, I can only fail at this point. <laughs> yeah, this is great. Uh, so anyway, the story that uh, I thought was, I, I think that most people remember from that lecture is that there's this uh, girl named Becky that was in my um, professor's youth department uh, when I was in seminary. And well, he wasn't a professor when he had Becky in his youth department, but this is when he was in seminary and he's trying to pay his way through seminary uh, as being a youth pastor. Something some of us can <laughs> definitely. I'll, t- I'll tell you what, what being a youth pastor, pastor pays well. It, it super does. <laughs> just like just, just rolling just it. Rolling <laughs> it. I mean, talk about neoliberalism, man. Youth pastoring uh, is the thing. I do it for the money. Anyway, he always tells this story that like this, this girl, Becky, was uh, just this really interesting, uh, charismatic young woman who was always happy and positive and really great to be around. And, and like she would come in in the youth department and hang out in his office before uh, he would go out and, you know, lead youth and, or the games or whatever. I mean, you know how that is. Like there's that, that, like that hour before youth department is just crucial to your prep time. And whoever comes into that office during that time can make or break you. And she was usually really good, but you know, he was a cranky grad student in seminary and he was having a bad day one time and Becky came to his office. And he asked her the wrong question. He, had, he said, um, Becky, why are you so happy all the time? And you know, it came out a little harsher than he thought and immediately he could tell that he messed up. And she said, well, I mean, she said, I, I basically, like, when, when I go home, when I go to school, when I go to work, uh, she worked at the local Christian bookstore, in fact, um, I was, uh, I am referred to as triple B, 
big breasted Becky. Um, but when I come to church, people just call me Becky. <laughs> and she says, and I just, I love that. Uh, and so there's a lot going on in that image, in that story, a lot of things. So this church, first of all, has embodied a type of sexual ethic. Because sex is not just about the sexual acts. It's about desire. It's about bodies. It's about bodily meaning, all that kind of stuff. And so they've embodied a sexual ethics to the degree that this girl, Becky, can thrive and flourish in her own skin in this environment. Mm. In the other environments, she's only ever seen in types of the shape of her body. Right. That's it. And so the, the, what I gain from this story, and there's a lot of theology that goes behind it, uh, theology of the resurrection, because uh, the point of Christianity is that the body um, participates in this wonderful reality called the resurrection of the dead, where bodies will be transformed so much that they will be capable of the very presence of God. So think about you know, all those uh, Indiana Jones movies where they pull out the Ten Commandments <laughs> and everyone, all the Nazis yeah, melt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, like, people just aren't in our bodily condition. That's why Moses, going back to Moses, yeah. uh, can't look upon the full glory of God, you know, has to look at his back and things like that. And so like all of these things like contribute to the fact that the resurrection of the dead, our bodies will be made capable mm. of that. And so the point that one of these early theologians, Gregory Nessa, makes that I really like about it is that the, the body that we have now is defined by certain things, like it's need of food, it's need of um, clothing, of shelter, of all these different things. Um, he doesn't put this in the list, you know, of its sexual desires, right? Um, he envisions that the, all of those desires, like for food, for shelter, for clothing, all that kind of stuff, will still be there in the resurrection of the dead, but it will be entirely, like that desire, will be entirely replaced by a singular desire for God, because all those other desires will have been taken off of the body. Oh, and so wow. here for um, Becky, that sexual desire that has been like pressured on her, yeah. so much so that she can only see herself in uh, light of her body shape, will be removed and she will be allowed to flourish. But here in this church, they have already begun to see with those eyes. Mm. And so they see her not in terms of those, um, that desire, but in terms of desire for that resurrected body that is capable of God. And she's able to flourish like a flower, you know, mm. and that kind of thing. Like a, and so the whole idea is that the sexual ethics um, of the church should start there. And so I use this phrase, iconoclasm. And iconoclasm is this like old word that just uses or is referred to describe like when the prophets of old would go into the temple um, during the periods when you'd have a king that would set up multiple idols in the temple of the Lord and they would tear down those idols. And so yeah. it's a destruction of those kind of false gods in the presence of the one true God. And so I say it's iconoclastic because the point of sexual ethics from the Christian tradition is exactly what those people are doing. Again, nobody in that church was having sex with Becky, let me be clear. Um, the point, though, was that her body was given a space to flourish and thrive because they did not desire the idol that would make it to where her body only has meaning inside of that shape. It actually says and removes all of those rubrics and places all bodies within that um, that promise of God for the resurrection of the dead. And so it destroys the idol of which body matters and which body doesn't, which is essential to the neoliberal understanding of sex. Certain bodies are sexy, certain bodies are not. Um, and that is essential to the, the whole system, right, that we just talked about, the one that gains acceptance, the one that leads to more prosperous jobs, all that good stuff. It's iconoclastic because it destroys that whole understanding of sex. Like sex is not about achieving some type of status. 
It is not about achieving some type of um, economic advantage. Sex in itself is a pure gift that reminds a body of its inherent worth held in the love of God, which is entirely what the resurrection is about. Um, this, this idea that God uh, so desires relationship with us that we are preserved even in our deaths to be with God bodily. And so that is what carves out this meaning of what we should think of with sexual ethics. Now, that is frustrating for some people because it's not prescriptive. But the, Yeah, that's true. It doesn't say, all right, these sex acts are okay and these sex acts are not. Mm. It doesn't do that. But the problem is, is once we commit ourselves to saying these sex acts are good and these sex acts are not, is we, we slip right back into the neoliberal understanding. This sex act becomes a commodity in which I know I'm performing right. good instead of participating in this larger theological understanding of what the body is meant for. So that's the first symbol. Um, I don't know if you have time for the other two, but grace is the second symbol. Just go for it, right? Just go for it? Just go for it. Okay, so grace is the second symbol um, where, and I love this uh, article by Rowan Williams. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry if that brings up any trauma. <laughs> I, I know because, uh, because uh, I know a friend, of, a friend of yours and a good friend of mine uh, constantly recommended it to you. Yes. Uh, uh, shout out Gavin Gorder. Uh, <laughs> at, at Gavin Gorder. Uh, the Body's Grace, yes. uh, which is a wonderful study about how the body um, itself is, uh, like when we talk about sex, it's not about which relationships are blessed and which ones are not. It's about what we want our bodily lives to mean. And so he says we couch that in language of grace because grace is about this unmerited love that God has for humans. And that God is willing to love humanity in a way similar to the way that God loves God in perfect trying fellowship. And so what we say about sexuality has to first understand this idea, this gracious, unmerited favor towards another that enhances their own understanding of their bodily worth mm. and meaning. Preach it. Yeah, and so that's important. Grace is essential because, um, you know, uh, both of you are married. I married both of you. Yes. Uh, so, like, I performed their weddings that came out awkwardly. Um, <laughs> So, like, you know, when either of you has sex with your spouse, the thing that you are not trying to gain out of that is some type of status, right? Yeah. It is a, a direct communication and the ability to, like, to say to this person without words that your body has meaning and it has, and it has value independent of what type of shape it takes. Because... Yeah. Your wives are going to change. You're going to change. And you're probably still going to have sex all throughout that. The thing that sex communicates is that value. And, and again, we use this word value. It's almost entirely understood to be monetary. I just want to point that out. When I yeah. say value, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about inherent worth. We really struggle with that language. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like, like you, you can't. We don't have the language, the language to separate it. No, we don't. Neoliberalism. Yeah. So, so, like, I mean, healthcare, yeah, chief example. Like, it's a valuable thing for people to be, like, medically cared for. Um, but when we talk about the value of healthcare, we're always talking about money. Yeah. yeah. So instead of it being a common good shared among all, oh, that's a different podcast. But anyway, uh, the point being, is, but the thing that's really great about this is that all of those, that activity of sex is not communicated independent of all the other ways that you already communicate to one another, that your body has meaning and matters. And so like when, and this is an old school thing, like when you pick up dry cleaning for your spouse or when you, um, 
wash the dishes when it's not your night or care for them when they're sick and old and things like that. That participates in the same sexuality and the sexual mm -hmm. ethics as does the actual act of having sex. Sex is very rarely about biology and organs and things like that. It is most intimately about this type of gracious like love shown to one's partner and spouse in a way that communicates that, that you have value and worth and meaning. Um, that's what Rowan Williams is trying to get across, and I think that's essential because um, if you think about it on the reverse side, what does ungracious sex look like? When I use another person's body for my own sexual satisfaction, but that's the most neoliberal form of sex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I get to use this for my own pleasure, my own personal choice. And the point, the thing that matters about sex is that it's completely deregulated. Um, there's no outside interference. As long as um, consent um, is there, then it's fine. But in the end, as we look in with college hookup culture, like it leaves people broken and battered and bruised and, and lonely because in the end, the person isn't there in the morning. The thing that's different about you with your uh, spouses is that the person that you had sex with the night before is there constantly mm. with you. Yeah. And that is, that is essential. That is essential because, uh, and I remember one of my professors said this, only the person whom you are most like, uh, familiar with can be the one in which you perform the awkward activity of sex itself because it is a weird thing, um, sex is. So there has to be something there. And then the last one is just covenant. Now, this is an interesting one because I juxtapose covenant with consent for a variety of reasons. And I just want to be clear at the front end of this. I'm not saying that consent doesn't matter. Consent always matters. Consent is a thing that's essential to any kind of healthy sexual relationship. It just might be insufficient. Yes, it is insufficient because um, it can be coerced. Mm. And it can be coerced in ways, because again, it goes back to that idea of capital. Um, Aziz Ansari recently um, was in a lot of trouble <laughs> yeah. because uh, he had sexual relations with a girl that he met at a party, and he thought he had um, gained from her consent. But they'd gone back to his hotel room. Here's this big movie star. She was not famous. And in that moment, she felt like she needed to, like, in order to continue to go to these high-end Hollywood parties, capitulate to his request to have sex, and so she does. Later, she comes back and says that I, I didn't really want to do that. Um, but he's like, but you said you wanted to. And so again, power, and he has a lot of capital. He has a lot of social capital. Mm -hmm. He has a lot of status and influence. And so he's able to have all the power in that relationship, and she doesn't, you know. Yeah, even where he may not even meant to hold that over yeah. her head or whatever, yeah. It doesn't even it just, have to be intentional. It's, it's just, inherent in the system. Yeah, he's privileged in that system, very much so. And so I use the language of covenant and, and like coupled with consent because, again, going back to the idea of your marriages, right, the idea is that um, you have this level of commitment. And this, I, I love the language of covenant because it's first the language that God uses to talk about Israel and all that good stuff. And there's that. It's, it's perfectly expressed and I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's, it finds this beautiful expression in the Song of Songs where um, these two are constantly talking about, even though they describe themselves as like not attractive according to their cultures, they have this deep desire for one another. Mm. Um, and this like desire to be with one another, that like covenant that exists there between Israel and, and God is mimicked and it should be mimicked in a healthy sexuality in the context of any type of sexual activity because only when one is covenanted to another that their bodily wealth and uh, health, sorry, well, neoliberalism, <laughs> bodily health um, and well-being um, 
and dignity is preserved. Only when someone has made that commitment to another body uh, can consent have a basis. Because when you are in covenant with your spouses, right? Like, you can and they can withdraw. Like, I don't want to have sex without fear of losing something. The reason why that woman for Aziz didn't want, feel like she could withdraw consent in that moment was because she would lose status, right? And so mm -hmm. it would have cost her. And so in the end, she has to go through this pretty traumatic experience of having sex when she really didn't want to and things like that. But in this covenant relationship that you guys have, you can have sex um, uh, and not have sex but still have that same level of commitment to one's bodily flourishing and well-being. And so consent um, is, is allowed to have the type of um, status that it, it really tends to um, when it's inside of this rubric of covenant, because there you can find a commitment to bodily flourishing that says this act only should contribute to your understanding of your own value and worth, mm. not something that you have to perform for the sake of achieving some status. It is always a super abundant gift in addition to the relationship you already have. It is not something necessary in order to maintain the relationship. And that's the point that the three prongs that I have for sexual ethics, um, that's why I set, I set it up that way. Because within that, you can then start to negotiate sexual relationships. But only when you have that rubric in place can you begin to think about sex theologically and outside the system. Because, to go back to your second question, it destroys the system because that type of sex, iconoclastic, gracious, and covenantal, is not competitive. And that's the essence of the neoliberal market, right? It's the competition for scarce goods and all these things, and you got to get the most status, individual choice, all that good stuff. It destroys the system because it relies not on those understandings of the human body. My body only has value so long as it can give me status and reward and all that type of stuff. My body already has value because it is held um, deeply in the love of God. Mm. And thus, my ability to have sex is something that arises out of that idea, not as my body is a mere tool to gain me something. We have yes. already gained what we, all we need in, mm. in God and that kind of stuff. And so that's, that's the point on which it destroys the system because and it, because it takes away this idea that we're all in competition to look the best, to feel the best, to be the best, and just, you know, rest. Because this is exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm waving my hands in two different directions for, for those of you who cannot see, which is everyone who's listening to this other than uh, John and Caleb. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, Hank, I want to go back to something that you said about our bodies having inherent... We're using words like value and worth, but I'm just going to go ahead and say, like, goodness? Maybe to try to take it away from that neoliberal language that we're kind of talking around. Um, and that's kind of where I've landed in my, like, health and fitness journey because that's, that's been a big part of my story and a big part of my life. And something I, I care deeply about is how I treat my body, how we treat our bodies. And it started as needing to lose weight in order to play college sports, and then all of a sudden I got positive attention, like we were talking about, and so I associated it in that way, and it, it, did, it became an idol at some level to me, and so in viewing it as kind of that iconoclast kind of way, destroying those idols, and seeing my body as inherently good, I can now treat it as if it already is, and I can take care of my physical health in a 
a more holistic way, a, a, a richer way, a deeper way, um, that I don't need to look or be a certain way because of that covenant I have with my wife. Shannon will be like, why do you care what you look like? And I'm like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> why do I? Um, and she, she's been, you know, that covenant has been a huge blessing to me um, and giving myself grace and tearing down those idols of appearance where I can treat my body, even outside of sexuality, I can treat my body well, not for its shape, not for its form, like uh, Becky, like your story, but because I am. I am created. I am human. I, and God will be my God, and I will yeah. be God's people. You yeah. know, and that's enough. Yeah, the way I like to express it to students, because they're like, what's, what's the brass tax of this? Like, when I'm, um, when I'm having sex with my spouse or something like that, I'm yet to be married. Uh, this is foreboding. Um, and I hope this is the way it is for you. I would hope the thing that's in the back of your mind, because a lot of times when people are asked to describe what they're thinking when they're having sex, it's like, do I look all right? Like, right, do I do, am I doing this right? And so, like, there's been a lot of interviews with, like, people involved in the sex industry or, uh, you know, porn stars, for example, and they talk about how uncomfortable it is, like, to actually get into the positions that look sexy on camera. Oh, wow. Um, and things like that. And they talk about the pain that that causes, like, physically, for their physically pain or, like, this, I remember, I'll never forget this one porn star was interviewed, like, he had taken... Um, like a ton of Viagra just to be able to have the amount of sex that he was asked to have and he ended up having a heart attack on set because wow. it destroyed his body but the thing that this covenantal gracious iconoclastic sex should roll in the back of our minds as we're just in the experience because that's what the point is is to be like I don't have to do this <laughs> and still have and for this person to still love me and that's the same with like lifting weights or like dieting I don't have to do this in order for my spouse to love me. I don't have to do this in order for God to love me. Um, and that's, that's hard because so much of like fitness culture, and I'm, I'm the last person that should talk about this uh, because I'm not in shape. Um, and not because I haven't reached out to my good friend, John Gerlach. Uh, I, I fully admit that <laughs> You just, just choose to not do the workouts yes. I've made for you. Yes, yeah, it's fine. It is 100% my fault. I fully accept that. <laughs> well, I, I love you despite that you See, haven't done this, this is good. Thank you so much. <laughs> Full circle. Full circle. <laughs> Welcome to the VF podcast. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's, so that's, that's the important thing. I mean, anything that is like health, sex, all of these things are done as a gift in addition to the bodily goodness, to use your phrase, I like that that we already have. And that's, that's the important thing. We've lost this language of gift. Um, and I mean, have you ever gotten a gift and you're like, oh man, I got to buy them something now, right? Yeah. Like neoliberalism can't be one down. So yeah. again, all of this is, it's always a gift in addition to um, what we already have. And that's, that's the important, hopefully, shift that we can start to make as a church because this other kind of sexual ethics that we have is, is very deathly. Yeah. Um, one, one more story. I don't know, too many stories, but I'll never forget. I, I heard the story of this young girl, and it broke my heart. She was sexually assaulted and went to a Christian healthcare um, provider. And the nurse came back and asked her if she was planning on saving herself for marriage. Um, and the girl had her purity ring on, and she talked about her pledge and, you know, the going down to the altar, all that thing I described to you earlier. And the nurse um, said, uh, well, you can't now. Um, your purity has been taken. All you can do is pray for God's forgiveness. Um, that's what she said. And so she, 
the victim of sexual assault has to pray that God will forgive her for being sexually assaulted. Yeah, for being impure. Wow. And that's the thing, is that, and, and I've heard all the counter arguments. It's like, oh, well, you can become spiritually pure and that kind of thing. That does not change the fact that this whole system is built on the act, act that your body has to be preserved from sex to have inherent worth. Right. Which means it doesn't have inherent worth. It's a commodity that you can exchange on. You can build credit, gain access to things, that kind of stuff. And so it's really important to see that embedded within our sexual ethics as it is. And so that's the shift we have to make. And I think that the, the point is, is that we have to do this sooner rather than later because a lot of teens, a lot of um, people, you know, are dying over this, like literally dying, <laughs> like not, not out of just like, like sexually transmitted diseases. And I'm not saying that. But, like, you, there's a high, high mortality rate amongst our youth and church for the various ethics that we teach them oh, yeah. that don't fit into their experience. And this is one of them. And it's usually by their own hand. Wow. So we can't afford to sit on this. We have to move and do something that's meaningful in ministry, which is the good work that you guys do. And so that's, that's the thing that we've got to double our efforts on. Yeah, I think that's a... I think it's a great capstone to our conversation. I think that's an awesome story. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think just the importance of raising up a spiritually healthy generation is be, like being in student ministry. I, I see the next generation coming up, and I feel like they're kind of our last hope. Yeah. And yeah, if we can if we can pass on to the next generation a a better set of practices, a better set of even questions to ask and and frameworks through which to view the world i think like you're saying like i can save lives like yeah. literal physical lives yeah. which is important yeah in some sense like the sexual ethics and everything is like and i don't think this is of all time because this is this is not a progression to something we're not progressing to something but i think recently in terms of like the rise of purity culture sexual ethics is viewed through a keyhole and our job in ministry is to open the door so more people can walk through it, um, as opposed to trying to die to squeeze themselves through that keyhole. Mm -hmm. Because the, the amount of sexual violence that exists in the church um, prohibits purity culture from doing anything other than killing. Um, because that girl that I mentioned that went through that process, this is the part I left off, she never fit into her community again, and she committed suicide. You know, and so wow. this is this is what's at stake. <laughs> we have to open the door so people don't kill themselves trying to fit through a keyhole. Um, yeah. That's that's the goal, and maybe you and I in our generation can only open it up like a little bit more. Um, but more people are going to be able to fit in, and then hopefully we can get to a better place in which this theological understanding of sex can open the door all the way, so that we all walk through together. Um, instead of deciding who can and who can't. I feel like so much of what you're saying right now is not just reshaping the way that we teach uh, on sexual ethics, but it's providing the space to be transformed. Yeah. And I feel like that's such a crucial part, at least growing up in the church, that I never really felt like I had. Never really felt like I had the space to kind of be transformed by what I was being taught. I, of course, I was transformed in negative ways by, you know, harmful ways of thinking and purity culture and different things like that. But um, I feel like that transformation, leaving that room to be able to live and grow in that teaching is 
almost just as important as what we teach. Yeah. I feel like that's what I hear a lot in, in what you're saying about how we need to change the message that we're giving people in order for there to really be changed to be transformed yeah even like in my own marriage like shannon and i have had tons of conversations around sex and sexuality because we weren't given the space to to have that you know breaking down of the idols we weren't given the space to um view sexuality in a sense of grace um we didn't have we didn't have the space to do what you're talking about and like, like that, that, that has caused, caused such, you know, issues, issues even, even not, okay. Our, our marriage is really great. Like, I'm not going to lie. I really enjoy being married. married. But, but like, woot. yeah, woot. Woot. Um, but you, you did, did a great job, job Hank. Thanks, well, well, other than mispronouncing our last name at the ceremony. Uh, I did not pronounce, uh, mispronounce uh, Caleb's last name, just for the record. Yeah, his last name is four letters. Anyways, Hank, you did a great job. Thanks, Yeah, like, I think... Caleb, we might need to make this a two-part episode, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, like giving giving people, especially young people coming up, but even not young people who have this baggage that they can't get rid of, giving them the space to view it with grace. And what was the last point? I forget, the three-pronged covenant. Oh, yeah, the covenant. Um, and to even have a better view of covenant than... Like, like yes, yes marriage, marriage, but covenant with, with God as well, and, oh, yeah. and and the true meaning of covenant. Yeah. We we don't give people the space to process that process that for themselves yeah. and to find out what those things truly mean. Yeah, and there's a thousand ways to look at this, but like the problem is is that marriage is itself treated like I mean the opposite of covenant is a contract, and so the contract that you get the purity cultural stuff is I won't do this, I won't do this, and then when I get married I'll I'll have sex with my husband again. That's how it's structured, you know, disadvantage to women. So there's kind of this like economic like it's an exchange in marriage like oh i married you now you have to have sex with me yeah as opposed to covenant which is allowing for even the possibility that you may not have sex um because you don't require that but it's there if you want to um that kind of thing because it's it's a part of the the story and the point of a contract and we is it's economic it's simple like that anytime we go and um, like I always think of it in terms of um, there's this gas station right here and sometimes I'll go buy a fountain drink on the way home because I really like fountain drinks. I don't know why. Um, you know, I give the guy the money. He gives me the drink. That's the exchange that happens here. And that's oftentimes what sex is like. Hey, I'm attractive. You're attractive. Let's do this. Yeah. But we treat marriage and stuff like that. So that's why I use the language of covenant and not marriage because marriage is oftentimes treated as a contract. And I mean, your vows are covenants, yeah. not contracts. Right, and that's why I think both of you had like you reworked the vows to be in such a way that it's not like you know I will love, honor, and obey, you know that kind of thing, which is checking off the list. But you know I vow to be with you, and even sickness and in health, and those kind of things. And that's what I think is most meaningful about when a marriage uh, participates in covenant, not vice versa. Yeah, the theological thing has to be first. Yeah, and, and I think the power of a proper Christian sexual ethic is kind of what you're saying in Covenant is like, it's when you don't have to. Like you don't have to have sex to get ahead in some way. You don't have to have sex to legitimize yourself in some way. Like that's where the proper Christian ethic around sexuality is, it's not coercive at all, but it's just, it's in Covenant, man and woman being together. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. In this case. Yeah, I like that language of course yeah. that you use. That's really good. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, I'm going to land the plane. Here. <laughs> okay. Thanks, I, I feel like this conversation has been so helpful, but also it's like kind of like drinking water from a fire hose. It's yeah. like there's so much there. Yeah. And the conversation, I feel like we could talk for hours about all the different trails that this conversation can lead down. Yeah. Um, but which it, is why Hank is going to write a book about it. That's right. Yeah. Or at least deliver lectures. And we may, we may have to come back for a part two. We might have to have a part two to this conversation. That's but, true. That's true. Um, in closing, uh, Hank, maybe just give the listeners a couple ways, maybe where they can find your work, where they can connect with you, uh, maybe talk about some other stuff that you've written, or even helpful resources on this topic. Um, okay, well, cool. Um, if you want to follow me on uh, social media, uh, Twitter at Duke13Theo, T H E O. Um, would be great. Um, I've also got my um, website, wanderingtheologyblog.org, um, or I forget what it is. It's, uh, it's something. If you just wandering theology, I so do. Um, I don't. I'm really bad at that. Um, I've written one book on politics and the Apostle Paul, which you can buy from Amazon or Whip of Stock. If you use the code CONF, you get a 40% discount. So do that. Had I known that. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it is called The Just and Loving Gaze of God with Us, Paul's Apocalyptic Political Theology. Um, and you can you can find that there. Um, it's super simple language. Anybody can just dive yep. right in. You'll have it done in an afternoon. Yeah, you'll have it. It's it's an hour tops. Um, so <laughs> you'll have it done at a, a certain afternoon. Yes, <laughs> in in six years. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, so bo- good books to read on sexual ethics and sexuality. I think the easiest thing to read right now is the Rowan Williams book uh, article on on. Um, the Body's Grace. There is uh, Margaret Farley's book, uh, Just Love. Um, there's also Eugene Rogers' wonderful book on uh, sexuality in the Christian body. All of these are wonderful books. Um, and you know, the, the great thing about the readings that I propose is that you don't have to like believe every or like follow every argument or affirm every argument to see the value of what those things are. Mm. I would rather read something that I didn't fully agree with so I could wrestle with it than just read stuff that was just feeding my ideology. Mm. Uh, And I think those three books are, are, well, those two books in one article are really great examples of uh, good sexual ethics, good sexual theology that help fund kind of some of the stuff that we've talked about here today. Awesome. Well, um, if you have any questions at all, feel free to reach out to us. We have a Gmail now, uh, so you can reach us at the vfpodcast at gmail.com. Um, also, if you would love to connect or if you felt like today's episode was helpful in any way, do us a favor. Go ahead and leave a five-star review. That really helps people find the podcast and join more people in on the helpful conversations. Also, you can follow us on social media. And until next time, we love you guys. Love y'all.